welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most fascinating city between Omaha and Salt Lake. Each week on the show, we discuss three topics and then dispense some love and hate. This week, September 13th, 2010, we have Merton, the chat roulette piano guy, and the second act of Colorado Springs' very own Ted Haggard, and we'll end up by unzipping the proposed zipper line on our favorite parking lot, Interstate 70. I'm John Dicker, washed up author and journalist. With me are Jared Mayer. Hi, Jared. Hey. And Jared is of facethestate.com. And Joel Warner, staff writer for Westward, is here with us as well. Hello. All right, let's get to it. Uh, the chat roulette, chat roulette guy, Merton. Why the hell are we talking about this, Joel? Well, first, maybe I should explain uh, what chat, chat roulette is for the three people left in the world who don't already know. What... Who aren't on it right now. Yes, who aren't on it right now. From what I can tell, it was this program started by this uh, 17-year-old Russian student where basically you fire up the website and you are connected to someone around the world who also has their webcam uh, turned on. And about at least 75% of the time, you will see naked penises. Now, the other uh, 25% of the time, you might or might not see this man named Merton who wears a big green hoodie and likes to do improv piano to what he sees on chat roulette. Man in the dark with his headphones on Doesn't want no one to see him Sitting there late at night on chat roulette Girl in the dark, how you doing tonight? Where you living in the world? Are you doing alright? No headphones, you got some speakers Saw the reflection in the flames of your glasses And I thought that it was some headphones Sorry I misunderstood the situation. All right, I totally get it now because that is so much better than seeing a 40-year-old fat man's penis. Some people thought it was actually uh, Ben Folds from Ben Folds 5, I think basically because it was a white guy playing piano. Turns out that it's not Ben Folds, but it turns out that this guy Merton lives here in Denver, which is why we're talking about him today. What does he do when he's not on chat roulette? That has yet to be determined. He hasn't actually said who he is yet, even though he has been going down to the 16th Street Mall and doing some of his piano improvisation live without the whole chat roulette gimmick i I gotta say i don't see what the big deal is i do like his aesthetic you know the the kind of windbreaker with the glasses he it and you know he's he's a good piano player but the improvisation isn't of a level where you know it's it's dropping your jaw well that i mean that's not the the main reason why it it was funny i mean the, the point is is that that's the whole thing with chat roulette right like you can get on there and you're totally thrown into these weird situations where you don't know what you're gonna get and it wasn't the fact that he was so great, but that people's reaction, right? Like, it was so wondrous and uh, spontaneous that they had this reaction to this, you know, they're expecting to see the dong, but instead they get this piano the song. guy. Oh, yeah, that rhyming? Oh, <laughs> expecting to see the dong, they get a song. Okay. tonight, throw gang signs in the air. I don't care wherever you're from. I'm from the other side of town. Still get down. You can bang your head to what I say. No, see, I agree with Jared, though. I mean, 
you know, for me, I've always avoided chat roulette just because it just seems so specific. Does, does anyone, has he said what he's uh, going to do now? I mean, this isn't, the chat roulette piano player can't be his ultimate career. According to some of the interviews I saw, you know, I think he said he's going to keep doing some videos for a while at least, even though I think now people know him, it's not as a, not spontaneous. I guess... In real life, he also, I think he does play piano professionally. Are you surprised that, that this thing received so much attention? Well, it's like any, it's like any internet video. Like, why, why is any internet video ever, ever big? And why all is right. it a big deal? It's like, you know, somebody, somebody walking down the street and they trip and they drop a cake and all of a sudden, just because some kid recorded on a cell phone camera, it gets three million views. It's no bulldog on a skateboard. No bulldog or on a it's, skateboard. It's no, it's no cockatoo uh, dancing to the Backstreet Boys. Um, all right, I say we move on to the next topic, unless there's something pressing you have to add about uh, about Merton. I'm, I hope to show him my dong on chat roulette soon. All right, nice let's job. move on. Ted Haggard, so F. Scott Fitzgerald famously Talking said, about dongs. <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald, thank you very much, famously said there's no second acts in American life, which is complete bullshit, uh, especially now in the age of reality TV, where there's third acts and fourth acts, remix acts. But as we all know, Ted Haggard was the disgraced pastor of New Life Church, who in 2006, on the eve of the midterm elections, gets uh, outed by Denver escort and bodybuilder Mike Jones as a long-running client who uh, he had, you know, they had a gay sex uh for cash, and he would occasionally hook him up with uh, methamphetamine. It was the led to the immediate downfall of Haggard, and since then he's been the subject of uh, Nancy Pelosi's daughter made a, do- a pretty, I thought, poor documentary on HBO about him, The Trials of Ted Haggard, and he keeps blipping up into the news, and now he's fully back in Colorado Springs with a new church. Whether you're a Democrat, Democrats are welcome, Republicans are welcome, Independents are welcome, gay, straight, bi, tall, short, whether you're an addict or a recovering addict or you have an addict in your family. See, I believe Jesus' arms are open to everybody, and I know... Well, I, my initial reaction was, how can this be? Because I think we all of us just expected, like, we had now finally dispensed of Ted Haggard and all of his trials. He emerged back with this new church, and he... What, what's it called again, this church? St. James. James. Yeah. He has he has a pretty good-sized uh, congregation already, right? Something like 200, I think, people. I mean, 100, ex- 160, according 160. to... At the, at the first... At the first, the first but, since, but since then, it's expanded. I mean, I, I really wasn't sure if I should regard Ted Haggard doing this in the same way that I regard all of these grasping reality TV attention-needing people who just cannot seem to stay out of the spotlight no matter how much they have made uh, a mockery of themselves and their family, and, and Ted Haggard just comes roaring back like the prodigal son. Well, it's part of the Christian narrative, the whole kind of redemption, your, con- your falling, forgiveness I remember when the story broke. I mean, what, what's interesting to me on a, many things interesting about this story, but one is how quickly, like that news broke on a Thursday or Friday. By that's almost the same day, or I want to say Saturday morning. You went to New Life Church's website where you know Pastor Ted was the brand, and he was gone. His books were gone. It was like Ted who you know on their website. You, they, in terms of just eradicating someone's presence, they will just snuff you out. And that was part of you know his whole severance deal was that he had to leave colorado uh colorado springs i think for two years but yeah he's back now and i think i what you said before jared was you're someone who can't stay out of the 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 limelight you know when you're used to having a weekly congregation in the thousands and you know george bush is calling you personally i would imagine it would be hard to to give that up yeah but 
of course it's hard to give it up, but the fact that he it seems that he's able to have made this comeback. John, when when after all this happened, you know, all of his uh, dealings had been splattered out everywhere for everyone to see. Would you have expected him to have made this comeback and to have his own congregation this soon? Well, uh, sure. I mean, we as we as a society love a comeback story so much, and I think these days the timeline that's necessary for people to redeem themselves constantly being shortened. I mean, do, we just don't have the attention span for these these kind of long comeback stories anymore. I came across this example of this a British politician named John Profumo, who in 1963 was caught with, I'm not sure if it was a male prostitute or a female prostitute. He immediately kind of resigned and withdrew from public life. How long do you think it was before this guy made his return? 73? 73? What do you think? 15 years. Publicly atone. Supposedly, this guy never, never returned. This guy spent the rest of his life uh, cleaning toilets, washing washing dishes, working with alcoholics in London's East End, never published a memoir. I'm questioning, like, do you think, do you think something has changed since then? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that Ted Haggard's so-called comeback story reminds me of a lot of these other people who have had these, these public figures who have had these major crises. I think that what Ted Haggard shows, what Rod Blagojevich shows, you know, Elliot Spitzer shows is that when you have these public meltdowns, if, if you want to have a future, you actually have to keep yourself in the spotlight. You can't let people get completely rid of you in, in, their, in their public minds. And I think that that's, that is one of the reasons why Ted Haggard has been able to persist and, and, and even have his new sinner church. Right. Do you think he should be? Do you guys think he should be allowed to kind of make this... Well, yeah, it's, a, comeback now. it's America. But the other part of the story that we're, we're ignoring was the new details that came out, you know, three about three years after the fall, I think in the beginning of 09, where other members of the congregation, I think a younger young man, yeah, young man who is gay or as they say in, in Christianese struggling with homosexuality. <laughs> he, you know, he was came public about you know, going on these trips with Ted and, and Ted say, Pastor Ted saying, are we going to be good boys tonight or are we going to be bad boys? And, you know, wanting to watch porn and, you know, use sex toys and that level of pathology and acting out and really abusing a position of power is something that his, his members of his flock need to keep a very close eye on. And but he had three weeks of cleansing camp, so he's OK now. Right now, I just see a, a perpetuation of this. You mentioned pathology. I say like a cognitive dissonance. I don't know how someone like Ted Hager can sort of balance those two things in his mind, like publicly leading this effort against uh, homosexuality as a, as a biblical sin, and then at the, in the second instant, going up and having sex and paying Mike Jones to give him massages. Well, I think it's also to point out kind of how with his new church, he's trying to kind of have it both ways. Where this is, you know, this is supposedly the church of the sinner and, you know, everyone's going to be invited, you know, gay, straight, what have you. Now, at the same time, it's also been made clear that he doesn't support uh, homosexual marriage. marriage. And and, and, Ted Haggard would, you know, as he's been quoted, he does not consider himself gay. Um, And his, you know, if he does, I would imagine there's the problem of his wife who is stuck by him, you know, by his side this whole time, much to the amazement of you know the rest of america so he would have if he did come out he would have to address that issue and i I, that's just not going to happen i i've read you know about the new church that he's welcoming gays there uh you know and i I don't really yeah but he's welcoming gays there as sinners right yeah Yeah. this is a sinner church your pastor has pretty much sinned as as bad as it can get 
in in the eyes of uh, uh, theology, having gay male sex, and so so there's not going to be a lot of uh, judgment being passed on. Well, any well sins I wouldn't even say that. I mean, so far, but I mean, I wouldn't uh, underestimate the power of this guy's kind of self involvement. Where you know he seems to think that he can kind of kind of switch on the dime whenever. Well, let it be said that Pastor Pastor Ted was never he was never as bad as a, a lot of the people on the Christian right, yeah. especially like even though he would work with Focus on the Family, he never went as far as Focus on the Family wanted to go. Like I remember in 2006, the Amendment 43, which would, you know, one of the gay mar- anti-gay marriage state amendments, originally that had been posed as like also a, a law that would have disallowed civil unions and folks on the family supported it. More of the moderate Christian right in Colorado didn't. And Pastor Ted was on that angle. Huh. And he, he wasn't as much of a gay basher as people want to make him out to be. Uh, the, the, only, the only thing I'll say is you, uh, Ted Haggard is a good preacher. You know what I mean? He's, oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a good yeah. he's a good speaker. He's very engaging and dynamic. I don't think I don't think that talent has gone away. And as someone who built his church up from nothing, I wouldn't be surprised if you know we're going to see more of him. Even though I really doubt he'll ever be the political power that he was on the verge of being. All right, let's move on. The zipper line on I seventy uh, internet interstate seventy. Uh, unless you're you know living in another state and maybe listening, that's uh, the east west main interstate that's how everyone in denver gets up to the mountain resorts it's always a traffic clusterfuck uh, especially on weekends during the ski season there's always a lot of hand wringing about what are we going to do about i-70 now there's sort of a temporary stopgap plan uh there was a study co- commissioned by uh was it the house the colorado state house um to invest, you know a feasibility study for basically a zipper line takes a, it's you know it's like a jersey barrier and then it would shift the shift into the on the other lane. So instead of having two lanes in either direction, for a time you'd have three going one way and one going the other way. And right now the proposal is to have on Sundays during ski season to have the eastbound lane be widened to three from, I believe it's from just outside of uh, Idaho Springs to right before the Eisenhower Tunnel, I think. Yeah, it's like 13 miles, a 13-mile stretch that would include, I think, you know, Georgetown and Idaho Springs, where, where it always kind of blocks up and gets nasty during uh, ski season. Yep, and the cost I, I've seen, you know, in the 30 to $35 million range to get one of these machines that actually moves these, uh, moves the barrier and shifts shifts the traffic. I've heard it'll save like 46 minutes for that. I think it's like a 12 or 15 mile stretch. So because that, I guess that's where the main congestion occurs and where it's plausible to do it. But nothing nothing has yet, you know, there's been no green light. This It's it's CDOT's decision on whether, you know, they're going to go ahead with it from what I understand. And it's only being proposed right now one, you know, one day a week just during ski season. It's not going to be a permanent thing. So let me open this up. Jump in. I, I think you said everything, John. <laughs> no, uh, the question of what to do about I-70 traffic has been an issue for decades, and it's always been a big battle between the people who want to see a high-speed rail line or a monorail or a high-speed chairlift or something going up there that would uh, be a mass transit solution and the people who say that it would be expensive and uh, not ultimately worthwhile. So this, the, 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 the reason why this uh, zipper lane is 
controversial at least is it's the people who want to see that mass transit solution saying this zipper line is just a stopgap. It's not going to help solve the ultimate problem of how to get people up and down I-70 um, into Summit County when, when ski season is uh, in place. And so they see it as an effort of, of the anti-mass transit lobby to you know put a halt to any expectation that there's going to be mass transit up into the mountains. Yeah, and I can kind of see their point. I mean, just for me, and maybe I'm being naive, I just can't, it's hard to see a 13-mile program really really solving all these problems that people have been suffering for, for decades now. And it does seem like, does it really make sense to spend between 30 and 50 million for something that's going to be up for a few hours? 14 weekends Yeah, 14 year, weekends. Or 14 you know, days. Doesn't it actually like slow down uh, the westbound lane yeah. considerably? Yeah. If you're, if you're go if you have to go west for some reason on a Sunday evening, you're, you're shit out of luck because that's going to add, you know, it's going to double your commute time because it's going to be one lane. The Lord knows, I mean, why would you be going westbound on a Sunday? So. Oh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's, I mean, that's what the study showed. I think it, it showed that for people going eastbound, you would save something like maybe half an hour or 40 minutes or something like that. But that time is just been shifted to the opposite direction with this for lane. So so what what are we actually gaining here? Yeah. But I guess the, I mean, it, it does beg the question of the kind of I hate to call it a pipe dream, but it does seem that way of some sort of high speed rail going up the I-70 corridor. You know, everyone knows that, you know, in Utah, you can go, from what I understand, you can go from Salt Lake City up to the resorts in about half an hour on public transportation. Denver, you it, it's a trek. I mean, I personally can say that I don't really go up to the resorts much just because going up and down in one day is taxing and I have not befriended enough rich people who have houses strategically located, you know, by the resorts. You know, that's and now the ski of, train's gone too. The ski and the ski train's gone as well. So wait, what? did did have either of you guys ever ridden the ski train? No, I always wanted to. That might be uh, not be an answer. Of course, the ski train only went up to Winter Park, but you know, it w- was beloved, but not ultimately heavily, extremely heavily utilized um, enough to. Now, now calling me nostalgic, but I mean, I just like this kind of. Con- concept of this big kind of construction project that we used to have, you know, the, the Ken Burns style treatments of the Brooklyn Bridge, or it took 17 years and so we should just make a lives we're lost. We just need a documentary. We just need a PBS documentary. Yeah, about- I think if we somehow kind of ship Ken Burns in with his film crew, I think then we can just start building and people get really <laughs> excited. You know, get some get some moving kind of swelling music as they start up the mountains. I will say this about the zipper lane idea. I mean, the only reason why it's appealing to me is like something has to be done with this, and at least this is an idea that is doable. That uh, you know, it won't require all the cooperation of every single county and uh, town along I-70 up in the mountains, which has always caused, um, you know, been one of the blockades of doing this. This was just in a, a preliminary study, and there's going to be more studies coming down yep. the road. But the next thing they have to figure out is, will it be feasible in terms of, you know, snow? I mean, you're going to be moving around this barrier back and forth every single day in the middle of winter when there's a lot of snow on I-70. What is There's a lot of accidents on I-70. What happens during those times? The places where it gets the most congested, right when you pass Idaho Springs and when you go up that hill right next to Georgetown. And the reason it slows down is because those are winding sort of difficult areas to maneuver. And so are we going to have a z- add a zipper lane into the mix right there? It just seems fraught with a little bit of danger. Yeah, nobody nobody knows. And the other I mean, the other de- criticism of kind of the pipe dream uh, high-speed rail line is just the, the, the nature of people's recreation use up in the mountains require, a lot of it does require, it's not like just, hey, drop you off uh, at the you know foot of Breckenridge or, or Copper 
and there you go. People go up there, and then they, you know, they go to their cabins, they go hunting, they go fishing, and they need cars for that. All right, well, we'll let's let's uh, come back to this uh, at a later date. But for now, let us uh, do love and hate. I'm looking at Jared to start. Okay, I I have a love again. I, I, I guess I've been feeling lots lo- of love loving, best. and this has to do with uh, something I spotted out at DIA when I was returning uh, from a recent trip. And while I'm sitting there waiting uh, to be picked up in the um, passenger pickup area, I see a a police officer there, a DIA police officer, on a Segway. But this isn't any normal Segway. It it is a a highly built, almost armored Segway. Have you seen these things? Armored Segway. Yeah, I've seen these. I mean, it looks like a mix between uh, Paul Blart, Mall Cop, and Judge Dredd or something like that. And he he was scooting around... so it had, like, body armor on the Segway? Like, what was it like? Well, I, I, I took a picture with my cell phone, and, and we can uh, post that on our on our website later. But it, but it almost looks like what – what do you think it looks like? It has – it's almost like a pyramid shape, and it has this big, humongous front to it. I don't even want to think it's how like much a, it's like it's like a go-kart. It's like a, it's like a standing go standing person. And here's go-kart. my question about this, why are you loving it? Well, Why are you loving it? That's what I, I want to know. No, I mean – Because my... it was hilarious. But I, was I mean just, – I got joy out of seeing this guy scoot around on this thing. I mean, I'm questioning the physics of this. I mean, you know, if this concept is supposed to withstand, say, you know, a frontal bullet attack by these shields, if this thing was shot, wouldn't it just fall over? Oh, it's it's not – it isn't quite Okay, so it was shot. not just – no, it's but, kind of like an advanced. It's like a Segway 2.0 or the industrial strength Segway. All right, Joel, you you give your love or hate. I've been trying to figure out when to love or hate. I think I shall do some hate today because I read a story today. Uh, this joint investigation by ProPublica and NPR is showing that uh, the military has apparently denied many, many soldiers. It could be up in the uh, tens of thousands. Uh, the Purple Heart uh, medal, which which is which is uh, given to soldiers who are wounded in battle. Supposedly, they've avoided giving it to a lot of soldiers who received mild traumatic brain injury, which is you know, has been a really controversial subject for the Army. They've been trying to downplay the number of the so-called TBIs and PTSD from both Iraq and Afghanistan, even though these are these are the wounds that have, that have become the signature wounds of these wars. And the Army is really for... A long time been trying to sweep them under the rug. I guess supposedly since 2001, they've given out something like 25,000 uh, Purple Hearts, while the official number of soldiers with, with just mild uh, TBI is something like 90,000. And uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury? Yeah, traumatic brain injury is what okay. TBI stands for. So yeah. I, was pretty, I was pretty fired up over that. And I'll just make a quick plug. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Denver Diatribe. Please follow us and fan us and all that stuff. Uh, and we are going to post links uh, to all the stuff we talk about on our website after each show. So my love is we're coming on the ninth anniversary of 9-11. And I wanted to re- love and it's kind of going to connect two dots here. One is Terry McDermott's article um, in The New Yorker, the current issue on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, the 9-11 mastermind. Is, is a great read, but also his book, Perfect Soldiers. I didn't think it got enough attention. And it's all about, it's one of the very few hoarded books about, devoted just to the 9-11 hijackers in terms of who they are, where, what they came from, what their story was. And for some reason, you know, you see the, the footage that we've all seen too many times before, and you, you see all the political opportunism around 9-11. But learning who these guys were, specifically Muhammad Atta, and the fact that the guy did not even like to eat food. He would, eat, he would literally eat cold mashed potatoes and he was just so obsessed with jihad and so obsessed with this distorted vision of islam that even when his uh, german roommate's girlfriend would come into the into the same room and she was wearing a sleeveless blouse he would actually walk out something about that uh, 
like the, they say the banality of evil. Something about those details about about that whole Hamburg cell really kind of fascinate me and, and terrify me. And that's just something I recommend to people. When did that book come out? That book came out, I want to say, in 05 or 06. Uh, per- Perfect Soldiers. And the author is Terry McDermott. And he has a really good, very well-reported piece about Khalid Sheikh Muhammad um, in the current New Yorker. So that's uh, pretty much all the time we got. Uh, again, our website, denverdiatribe.com. We have a Facebook page uh, that we link to from that. And we're at Denver Diatribe on Twitter. And give us recommendations for the stuff we should be talking about. Yeah, we're happy to steal your ideas. So, uh, yeah, stuff we're not talking about or if we missed something in these conversations, which I'm sure we did, please let us know what you think. We are out. I kept trying to deal with it in within when, spiritual circles, so and that you, didn't work. When out. you said you uh, spoke to one of the spiritual leaders, you said what? I'm having these. I told him I was having uh, homosexual temptations and, and thoughts like that, and I needed to process through it. What should I do? And you think and do you think you're gay? No, I don't think I'm gay. I did wonder about that after this crisis. When I went to therapy, I said I need to know: Am I gay? Am I straight? Am I bi? What am I? And my first therapist said, you are a heterosexual with homosexual attachments. You guys have a thumbs up situation over there. <laughs> like putting your thumbs up in the air. That really hurts my feelings. I'm being very serious right now. takes me seriously and now you guys are laughing hilariously making hands